You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Your Health Matters. Your Health Matters is a weekly program featuring interviews with local and national physicians and medical educators about relevant health issues. This program is intended for general information purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical care. Please discuss this information and any questions with your family physician. And now, here's Dr. Craig Wax. Welcome to Your Health Matters. I'm your host, local family physician, Dr. Craig Wax, talking about the topic of the day, the SARS-CoV-2 virus or COVID-19 prevention and herd immunity, which is both are of critical importance to us um, as a people, as a society, and as a world. Our special guest is Dr. Harvey Risch, who has an MD and a PhD. Um, and uh, he's up until this year done cancer epidemiology and has spent his time with infectious epidemiology over the past year's pandemic at the Yale School of Public Health in Connecticut. Welcome, Dr. Risch. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you um, for uh, spending your time here. I know that uh, at the moment, in addition to your usual work and then the work of the current pandemic, that you've been doing a lot of media work. So thank you for sharing your time with us. It's, it's great to talk to any audience that's willing to listen. I think there's a lot to talk about. Super. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and training so everybody understands where you're coming from? Sure. Uh, after medical school, I decided I wanted to be an academic researcher and I went and got a, a PhD that, that was in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemic processes. And I published uh, on that topic in the scientific literature before I started in the cancer research that I did after that point. So I started off in academic life thinking about mathematical models of how epidemics work, what factors cause them to go up, go down, and, and so on. And then I spent, um, 30 plus years doing cancer research, publishing hundreds of papers and so on. And then at the beginning of last year, the state of Connecticut formulated, wanted to formulate a policy for reopening the state after the, the initial lockdowns. And so I got tasked with being on a task force to formulate a policy by the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering of which I'm a member. And during that time, I started recognizing that there were issues about early treatment. You know, in, in every disease that we know of, we try to treat it as early as possible because more things happen the longer you go and every disease that's known gets worse and harder to treat the longer you wait. So a, a general principle of medicine is to treat early and fully and try to stop the process at, at, as early as possible. And so what I was seeing in the, in the literature of papers coming out and people speaking in public was number one, recommendations not to treat the illness early. And number two, that medications that had been examined in hospital settings for hospitalized patients were being stated not to work for outpatients. Now, very early on, we recognized that COVID-19 is at least two diseases. It starts off with a flu-like illness. You know, the typical things 
of a cold or flu, sore throat, headache, muscle aches, fever, cough, runny nose, joint aches. All of those are, are standard kinds of features of an initial viral illness that, you know, that, that's characteristic of the flu and other respiratory illnesses. But after about day five or six days of, of symptoms, in some people, this uh, illness progresses to a very intense respiratory pneumonia. And, and that pneumonia is what lands people in the hospital. Nobody dies from the, the initial viral illness. It's, it's the pneumonia and the virus going to other parts of the body besides the lungs, and all over the body through the bloodstream and so on, that creates the severe illness that needs to be treated in hospital and that has such a risk of, of mortality from. And so studies that looked at, for example, drugs like hydroxychloroquine at the beginning of last year were studies of, of hospital patients. And hydroxychloroquine it, it may work for hospitalized patients in some circumstances and it may not in others. We don't know what defines who benefits from it and who doesn't. There was a study published yesterday or the day before showing that large doses of hydroxychloroquine work in reducing mortality in hospitalized patients. However, there are other studies and, and you have to take the whole literature as it is. So it's, it's not yet known completely about that aspect. But early last year, people were saying that, oh, we've seen these hospital studies that don't show benefit. Therefore, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, period, full stop. Meaning that it doesn't work in outpatients, except for the fact that there weren't any studies in outpatients and the ones that had started to be done showed that it did work in outpatients. And so early on, you have this disparity between the evidence for outpatients showing that it worked and the public statements for hydroxychloroquine claiming that it didn't. And so I decided, well, this makes no sense. Is this sloppy or what? And I went back to the literature and started reviewing all of the studies that I could find dealing with hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir and so on, which is the other drug at the time, and risk of hospitalization and death in COVID patients. And I wrote this up as a paper in the American Journal of Epidemiology that was published last May, showing very clearly that hydroxychloroquine, when used in high-risk people, so people over age 60 or 65, or who have obesity or diabetes or their chronic conditions, when used in, in those people, starting within the first five days or so of symptoms, is undoubtedly reduces risk of hospitalization and mortality. It was very clear at that point. And then, of course, there was pushback against that for whatever reasons we can talk about later. But, but the, the point was that, that the science was clear. And it's continued to be clear as every successive publication that has come out since then uh, has shown that hydroxychloroquine has benefit in reducing hospitalization risk and mortality risks. And now we've had <clears throat> some really large studies, a study of 8,000 patients in Saudi Arabia, that's a national study in, in their modernized healthcare system, showing four and a half or five-fold reduced mortality with hydroxychloroquine use. A study in, in Iran with 29,000 patients showing three and a half or four-fold reduced mortality risk with, with hydroxychloroquine use. Uh, a study in, in France now of 10,000 patients, of whom 2,000 were high risk, again showing the, the same reduced mortality risks. There's now over 40,000 patients that have been studied in these studies, and they all show the same thing. Mortality risk is cut by about three quarters on average for hydroxychloroquine 
And generally, it's it's not just hydroxychloroquine by itself. It's with it, with other medications like azithromycin or doxycycline or zinc, vitamin D, and so on. We published now two papers on early outpatient treatment at, in the medical literature, looking at the whole regimen of medications that can be used. And every day, practically, there's another medication that comes out that can be used for, for treating. And, uh, and it's great because doctors now have a whole repertoire of things. If somebody's got a contraindication to hydroxychloroquine, they can use ivermectin or colchicine or, or fluvoxamine or, or uh, you know, there, there's a numbers of things that are available. And it's a clinician's choice to figure out what's going to work best for the patient in front of me. It's not a recipe. It's not, it's not automatic. It's, I've got a whole bunch of things that I can choose from and maximize the benefit I can convey to this patient. And, and that's how the, the actual medical care for outpatients has gone on this year. And I guess I'm telling you the whole story all in, in one sentence. Um, and the, um, and what we've learned now is between uh, telemedicine groups that uh, one telemedicine group has treated 70,000 outpatients this year, another one or two of them have treated 20,000 patients each. We have Dr. Zelenko who's treated 3,000, Drs. Farid and Tyson in Southern California treated 4,000, Dr. Proctor in Texas has treated 3,000, and plenty of other doctors have treated large numbers of patients. So we've got 120,000 patients at a minimum who've been treated this way with a handful of deaths in total, no deaths from hydroxychloroquine. It's been a, an open secret that this medication, when used by doctors in the real world, considering their patients as individuals, works, period. And yes, there are there's rare people for whom it doesn't work. There are people who get hospitalized, but by and large, it is an overwhelmingly successful method of, of treatment. Right, which is utterly amazing because a lot of us in the field um, have been doing this since, um, since April of 2020, you know, when, when it, it began to emerge from other places in the world that there were elements of things that could work. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, the, the government, the media complex, even the academic complex was out to, to shoot it full of holes. And I mean, was it um, communist Chinese propaganda? Was it misunderstanding, you know, did you, you saw that as well, that, that none of this would, would seem to fly. Well, there were a lot of things that aligned all at the same time. There was uh, President Trump's statement about its efficacy that generated huge amounts of uh, political pushback. There was, in fact, the, the anti-messaging had started before Trump said that, uh, two or three weeks. We already know that France had changed hydroxychloroquine status uh, in January from over-the-counter, which it had been for all previous years, uh, to prescription only as part of their way of, of suppressing it. This was well before President Trump said anything. So this was already going on. The companies that are, were planning to manufacture competing products already knew that they had an economic risk that they had to suppress. And so that's the other aspect of this that there was a whole campaign set up already to reduce the uh, potential market share of competing medications. And, and one sees the worst example of this in Merck and its statement about ivermectin. Ivermectin is another drug that's part of the repertoire 
of usage for treating early COVID. And it was their drug originally. It was their drug, now generic. It had been their drug. The patent ran out. They still made it. They had made it in large quantities, but because the patent had run out, it had become essentially generic. Other companies made generic medications. uh, And so uh, about a, a month ago, six weeks ago, they put out a public statement saying, we know of no evidence that ivermectin is useful in treatment of of outpatient COVID-19. Well, they said that in spite of the fact that there are more than 200 studies showing benefit of of ivermectin use. And, you know, this was nothing short of of just propaganda from the manufacturer. And why? Because they had recently purchased for $450 million another company that was making a competing drug that they were planning to make. And in fact, now, just five or six weeks later, they've sold that competing drug to the federal government for $1.6 billion. So they had a billion dollar profit sitting there waiting to be made. And the only way they could do it is by suppressing the marketplace for something that they knew would, would, would counter them. This is the game that's been played for the whole year and a half now with over-the-counter and inexpensive medications that will work to treat COVID-19 for outpatient. Right, and my understanding is, is you can't get an emergency use authorization for any type of new technology vaccine or a new type of drug that's $3,000 a dose like remdesivir, that was a drug without a home for, for a decade, um, that y- you can't have a competing product that's generic and inexpensive because then the FDA can't approve it or pre-approve it, I should say. Well, we used to think that was the case, but because the FDA has just sort of approved everything and anything that has some large pharma organization behind it that's done multi-million dollar you know, trials, that consideration seems to have gone by the wayside. So what we see is FDA approving multiple vaccines. Why, did, why did they, didn't they stop after the first one? Okay. Right. Uh, you know, and but then and there, you have, there are three, three, three big money companies, you know, right. Pfizer, um, Johnson and Johnson and Moderna that hadn't produced a product. But apparently Fauci, Dr. Fauci had a, um, a contract with since 2015. Yes, I think Moderna and the NIAID were jointly researching making vaccine viral vaccines. And so there are at least four patents that in the Moderna vaccine that are held by NIH researchers. Wow. Well, that's certainly something uh, to be concerned about. This probably would be a great place to take a break, and we'll come back and talk about herd immunity after the break. We'll be right back with more of Your Health Matters here on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. Welcome back to Your Health Matters. I'm your host, local family physician, Dr. Craig Wax, talking to our special guest, expert about the prevention of and herd immunity to SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Our special guest expert returning from the break is Dr. Harvey Risch, who is an MD, PhD, and uh, studies epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health in Connecticut. Welcome back, Dr. Risch. Pleasure. So prior to the break, we talked about prevention and early treatment. Um, Let's talk about herd immunity, because it seems like it's been around for a hundred years. We've learned about how the immune system works um, with several different mechanisms to memorize things that come at it and defend ourselves and remember how to defend ourselves in future exposures. Can you tell us a little bit about what herd immunity means and then what 
the current issues are? Well, herd immunity is a technical term that people who study epidemics use. And um, it, it's, it's almost the same as immunity or population immunity. In fact, one thinks of, just should think of population immunity, that when an epidemic starts, nobody or a, generally a small fraction of the population is intrinsically immune. As people get infected, if they recover, if, it, if most epidemics involve people who recover, so when they recover, they become immune. The number of people susceptible in the population starts to go down. Then the epidemic slows down, reaches an equilibrium at a peak when the number of people who are getting new infections balances out the number of people who just have had infections to be able to give them. And then more people are immune and the epidemic declines at a certain speed. And the, the more people after that get immune, the faster the epidemic goes down. The point at which the peak of the epidemic occurs, the top of, of that curve is where herd immunity has happened. So herd immunity doesn't mean everybody has to be immune. Herd immunity is when the epidemic is, starts to slow down. That point happened in the United States for Midwest states, North Dakota, South Dakota, also uh, Tennessee, Rhode Island, and lots of other states happened last fall. It happened in October, November. By December, the majority of states had passed that point. In January, when vaccine rollout started, most of the states had already passed that point and their epidemics were coming down. Now, what this means is this happened in, in these states when approximately about 100,000 people per million had already had exposure to the infection. Now, about 80% of those are thought to be asymptomatic, that they had it but didn't know they had it or with minimal symptoms. And at this point, that's enough to slow the infection, enough that it comes down sub substantially. And once you add to that uh, vaccination, as we've had in the, ro in the rollout since that time, the infection has comes down much more quickly. And so now in those states, we're talking about approximately 80 to 85% or greater immunity to, to the virus and to, to the prevailing strains of the virus. And, and that's growing elsewhere in, in states that have less, they're growing too. And that's why the United States as a whole is coming down rapidly over the last few weeks, because between the, the immunity and the vaccine immunity, you have both adding to the ability for people not to get infected. So Will herd we... immunity is, is primarily because of exposure to the disease when you kind of get over that peak and more people have been exposed to it and survived and developed their immunity to it, that less people then can then get infected, which makes all the sense in the world. Vaccine immunity um, adds to that potentially, but the primary definition of herd immunity is natural exposure, correct? No, actually, it could be both. And in fact, okay. herd immunity can occur if, for example, if you lock down people who are contagious, not everybody, but just people who are contagious, and that reduces the transmission, you'll grow herd immunity that way. In other words, anything that, that reduces the ability of the virus to infect other people impacts herd immunity. And so it's not, so ultimately, the best way is to get everybody immune in their own immune systems, rather than imposing non-drug methods. But even if you medicated everybody, if you gave everybody hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin for prevention, and the, these drugs do work very well for prevention, mm -hmm. and you prevented 
you know, three quarters or, or seven eighths of the population that way, the, vaccine, the, the virus would go away too, because there would be nobody left to get it, which is another form of herd immunity. So any way that you can contribute to herd immunity through any of these methods gives you herd immunity. Herd immunity is just resistance of the population to becoming infected. Right. And so to, in 2005, Dr. Fauci was on record saying that hydroxychloroquine acted as both a vaccine and a treatment and, you know, later recanted that in years later. Um, so what you're saying backs that up, that, that, that the medicine, um, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin and some other things potentially not only have treatment capability and prevention capability, but they also kind of prime the immune system to, to respond uh, in a immune way. Is that a, a correct abstraction? I don't know if I would say that exactly, but the fact that if a person is protected from becoming infected, that means that person is also protected from transmitting the infection. And therefore you prevent, transmit, preventing transmission is what, what creates new cases. So the functional result of that is that the person who might have been infected doesn't get infected and that's called immunity. It's not that person's personal immunity, it's somebody else's immunity that protected them. And that's so what question. herd immunity is about. So do you think to this point, um, when, when, when this is, uh, is being recorded here in uh, early June of 2021, um, do you think that primarily our herd immunity that we have is primarily because of natural exposure for a virus that just spreads like wildfire, or is it primarily from the vaccine? I think right now it's still probably two thirds from natural immunity and one third from the vaccine at this point, I, I think. It's hard to gauge. They're not exactly equivalent because the vaccine is probably slightly less effective in covering all of the different parts of the virus and ge generating antibodies to all of the different parts of the virus that natural immunity does. B both immunities are likely to last long periods of time. Natural immunity creates not just antibodies, but T cell immunity and B cells, which are the cells that make the antibodies. And those B cells migrate to the bone marrow and stay there quiescent until they get rechallenged with a new infection months to years later. And so immunity for this Immunity to the SARS-1 virus, we know has lasted 17 years. And there's every reason to think that immunity to SARS-CoV-2 will last for years as well. And so that's what I'm expecting. We, we're now facing variant mutant strains that are making their way around the world. Those seem to re be requiring a little more aggressive treatments, but are not really changing the basic picture uh, what we're seeing. And so when those strains hit a new population with a, a major amount of immunity, as we have in the United States, they may make some bumps in the epidemic curves, but they're unlikely, in my opinion, to generate whole new epidemics. And those bumps will be treatable. And, if, and for people who've been vaccinated, who are still at, at some risk, not zero risk, but at some risk of getting COVID infections, we need to be able to treat them quickly. They need treatment just like an unvaccinated person will need treatment. And so are the treatments that we've talked about will be perfectly good for using in them if that scenario arises later in the fall thing. Okay, so someone that's had the disease and the illness and successfully convalesced now has antibodies, B cells, T cells, natural killer cells, and an immune system that's 
primed to prevent it from happening again, even if it is a variant, whereas people with the vaccine may be affected more from the variants. And if you've had the vaccine, you can still get the illness. The idea is, is perhaps that you might not get it to the same extent, but they do need early treatment. And early treatment can carry us through the rest, in, yes. is what you're saying. Uh, yes. That, look, the antibodies to, from the vaccines cover 25 or 30 different sections of the spike protein. So it's not like a mutant, which changes, you know, three or four sections of that or five or six is going to be uncovered. There's still going to be a fair amount of coverage by the vaccines. And so the vaccines will help. Will they be perfect? No. Are they perfect now? No. But, but still, even if you had 50% immunity by, by vaccines, that will cut the, the transmission in the population substantially and still keeps you getting or approaching or succeeding with herd immunity. And so, should... I'm, I'm you know, sorry, if, go ahead, you first. So the vaccines will still be useful, you know, in high-risk groups. Uh, and so there's no reason to think that, you know, we're going to need vaccines every six months or years. I think the way to see this is just to treat it empirically and, and see and have as a backup the treatment with hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, colchicine, bevipiravir, fluvoxamine, you know, I mean, there's a whole pile of things to be used and, and that's how people should do it. Okay, and if someone has had the illness, should they consider the vaccine? There's mixed messages out there all over with regard to, is it even safe to take a vaccine when you've had the illness and you're re-exposed to that T-spike protein? There are four papers that show increased adverse uh, events occurring in people who've been vaccinated after having had COVID. And there's one paper that I know of that's shown that if you vaccinate people, after having had COVID that they make higher uh, antibody levels. But the point of that is that's what their immune system should be doing. When people who've had COVID, even if they're quiescent, their antibodies are quiescent, when you vaccinate them, that's like getting the infection again. The spike protein is all out there again. And so their immune system is responding to that and making antibodies, which is exactly what immune systems do, which proves that those people with prior infections are just as able to fight off the infection and don't need to be vaccinated. That's the whole point. All right, super. If somebody wants more information on this or yourself or um, the pandemic uh, virus, what are you recommending that they do? They can email me at Yale School of Public Health. Google me, Rish, R-I-S-C-H, at Yale School of Public Health. It's easy to find me and I'm happy to respond to emails. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time and effort and thank you for um, being outright and uh, forefront and outspoken with regard to your um, epidemiological experience with uh, this virus and others. Now, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. For this and more information, you can always go to healthisnumber1.com, spelled in words, healthisnumberone.com, and we have some links to this information on the links page under COVID-19. You can also catch up with us on Twitter and Instagram at the at symbol, Dr. Craig Wax, D-R-C-R-A-I-G-W-A-X. You can catch up with us on Facebook and YouTube, but of course you can always catch quality Rowan radio programming for 89.7 WGLS-FM, not only on radio, but at rowanradio.com. Well, that'll wrap it up for this edition of Your Health Matters. We'll be back next week with another authoritative guest and another critical topic 
right here on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. You've been listening to Your Health Matters. This program is intended for general information purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical care. Please discuss this information and any questions with your family physician. Be sure to join us every Saturday morning at 8.30 a.m. for another edition of Your Health Matters on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.